Welcome to the Made to Parade podcast, sponsored by the British Drum Company, manufacturers of the Phantom, Regimental Series and Axial Parade drums that look amazing, sound amazing and feel amazing. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Made to Parade podcast. You're joining us on episode number four of season number six. And I really hope you have enjoyed the, the first three episodes. There are some great conversations with uh, Drum Derg, uh, Lisburn Young Defenders, and also the Parkinson Accordion Band. One of the things that I've been asked a lot about, especially by flute players, is could we do something like a podcast or an episode with one of the, the flute makers? and maybe talk a wee bit about flute maintenance and all that kind of stuff. So I'm absolutely delighted today to have a very special guest with us who not only makes flutes, um, but makes lots of other instruments as well and will be reasonably well known to some members of the band scene here. There'll be a number of bands that will be, be carrying our guests' flutes. And I'm absolutely delighted to have Pete Worrell on the podcast with us uh, today. So I'm just going to bring Pete in now and uh, we'll have a wee bit of a conversation around flutes and bonds and all sorts of stuff, music here. So here we go. Hi, Pete. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Um, Not a problem at all, Pete. Absolutely fantastic. Great to have you on and uh, great to have a, a flute maker on the, the show and uh, talk a wee bit about that whole process. And I have to say, I'm absolutely delighted to be an owner of one of your flutes. You made one for me not that long ago. And um, I, I'm using it on a regular basis. I absolutely love it. So thanks very much for, for taking the time out to, to be with us. Um, You're welcome. Maybe You're a good welcome. place for us to start with. Some people will, will, will know you just because they've either they've bought your flutes, or whatever. Maybe a good place for us to start is give us a wee bit of an introduction to yourself, you know, who you are, and maybe a wee bit of saying maybe your, your musical background. Yeah, sure. Um, I I started playing clarinet when I was the age of six. I took lessons um, and I learned, learned from my um, a jazz player uh, called Jack. Uh, just found him in the phone book, you know, my dad <laughs> found him. And, um, so I had lessons with, with Jack for a few years and then uh, we, we managed to get some lessons at school. So I switched from jazz music uh, to classical, which was kind of the the, the thing to do, really, um, mm -hmm. and I carried that through all, all the way through uh, my school years. Um, I I actually went for an audition at the Royal College of Music for the uh, the junior orchestra on a Saturday. Um, I, I must admit, I mean, I was I was only fourteen or fifteen, and whilst I was a I thought I was quite a good player when I was actually in the rehearsal room with the other uh, people auditioning. I realised that maybe I wasn't quite what they were looking for. But that was OK because, you know, it made me think about the way I look at music. And, um, uh -huh. and I wanted to absolutely stay in music, but I knew that my career probably wasn't going to be as a performer. So um, I, I, I was into cycling as well. You know, I was 13, mm -hmm. 14. I was doing a bit of racing. Um, but as soon as I uh, could leave school, I did. I didn't stay on for any further exams right, okay. or anything like that uh, because I, I, I wanted to work. Uh, you know, right. the, the, I, 
I wanted to do something and it kind of just, well, I wouldn't say I fell into musical instrument making. I made a conscious decision to try and stay within music. And I had, um, I had interviews with a brass company, um, uh-huh. a company that made accordions, um, and finally managed to get a, um, a job with um, Howard, who were the oboe makers. Right. And, and I, I, was apprentice, I was an apprentice there. Okay, cool. Uh, rolling it back a wee touch there, Pete, if you don't mind. What was it that drew you to the clarinet? Was there you know, a reason why that was the instrument that you started playing? Well, I was fortunate that uh, my parents gave uh, us children the opportunity to try any instrument that we fancied. So right. my sister chose the flute. Uh, my brother, I think he tro- chose the trumpet. I mean, none of them continued, but, you know, they've always got that musical background. And, and I must admit, um, I chose the clarinet purely because uh, Acker Bilk was in the charts playing Stranger on the Shore. So, right. you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a great instrument. I loved his look. Uh, uh-huh. Obviously, later years, I, I, I realised I didn't particularly want to emulate his style, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was great inspiration, actually. Um, uh-huh. and, and actually away from sort of the, the hip parade kind of music that he was known for. He was right. an incredibly uh, brilliant jazz player. Okay, cool. So I take it there was lots of music around the house then. Your, par- your parents musical as well? No, not at all. Um, right. my, I mean, my father had a, a dabble with um, a drum kit when right. when he was probably in his 40s or so. I remember the drum kit being in the, in the front room and uh-huh. his kids, you know, beating it and trying to do something with it. Uh, yeah. My mother, my mother wasn't musical at all, but she was very encouraging. So, um, I mean, there wasn't, there was always music in the house, but it generally was my older brothers who preferred kind of rock music and stuff like right, that. Okay. So, um, okay, but the, the, as you were saying, there was an encouragement there from the parents that if, you, if that was something that you wanted to, to try, that they were they were going to be supportive of that. Then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they uh, the 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 children in my family who did carry on, they supported them um, as much as they could, giving them, you know, when they could afford it, private tuition, and of course when the schools kicked in, because that was the days when uh, you you could have a musical a music lesson at school. And of course yeah. these days it's it's slightly different, you know, um, it's 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 changed a bit since. Um, you know, having music teachers at school. Yeah. It's not really high up on the agenda for some schools, is it? You know, it's kind of, I know that for me, whenever I was growing up, I mean, I had music lessons in school up until about sec- what it was second year. What's that? Year eight, year nine. Um, not, and then after that, there there was no provision for music whatsoever in, in the school that I was in. But yet there are some schools here in Northern Ireland, I'm sure the same in terms of England and beyond, where music's an integral part of the curriculum. It's just not happened to be. It's just not the same for for all schools. I, I'm not entirely sure whether it's the same, but I do hear uh, from my customers that come in with instruments that I look after. 
you know, I, it, it's a constant thing. You know, there's there's no music in the schools unless the parents really push for it. Right, okay. The school can afford, uh, you know, a peripatetic teacher to come in. But as mm -hmm. a general rule, it does seem that the basic understanding of music is is kind of forgotten uh, in a yeah. lot of schools, which I think is a huge shame because, as we know, yeah. you know, it's it's a major part of our lives. Mm. And, I, and it's what it adds to your life as well, Pete, isn't it, in terms of, you know, not just the enjoyment, but the, the sense of achievement and how that, for me, almost um, how an instrument plays a part in my own kind of mental health and being able to cope with certain things, you know, that being able to reach for an instrument's a way of dealing with stress, a way of, you know, kind of being able to just express how I'm feeling at that time. And it's so much more than just learning how to play an instrument. There's a whole set of life skills that come with playing an instrument, doesn't there? Oh, absolutely. There is. There is um, I mean, I do exactly the same, you know, if I'm feeling stressed, I've I've got a music room that I can disappear off and pick an instrument up. And uh, it can it can sound terrible, but you know, I can come out of there mm. half an hour later and I, I'm I'm lost without that sort of sense of just that little bit of escape, that little bit mm. of time where I I can play an instrument and not think about what's been going on today and you know yeah. uh, so yeah it's it's it's, I, it's it's so important it really is yeah and, and it would be great if schools could kind of pick up on that you know in regards to you know but again i i know that you know budget restraints and all sorts of other you know focuses in regards to school and achievement you know maybe push pushes it further down the agenda for some you know i know there's you know, they've got leaderboards, performance indicators, all sorts of stuff, you know. And, you know, I suppose that the key aspect of uh, most schools' focus is get, most, make sure kids leave with five to eight GCSEs, a grade A to C, you know, and make sure their maths, English, and science is part of that. You know, that's it kind of changes the focus away, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, I mean, as, an, as a, a small example, um, a friend of mine, his son wasn't doing particularly well in school. He 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 was wasn't uh, academic at all, huh. and they 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 took him for tests and everything to find out. You know, is there something wrong with him? But actually, it turned out he was artistic. Right. Okay. And he took up a musical instrument, and he took to it like you know, like a duck to water. So uh -huh. it's just that finding what he's he he was. Where his niche was, and it, yeah. it wasn't in academia. Yeah, and and I suppose that 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 that's a really great way of putting it as well, isn't it? You know, you talked about artistic there, you know, and being able to to find out what that young person's need or a person's need actually is in terms of their ability to express themselves or the ability to engage. Because young people, young adults, adults get written off because they don't fit the mold of, oh, you're not smart according to this particular curriculum. However, there could be, there's talent and skill within that person and it's just given an opportunity to, to find it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so one of the other things you talked about there was you, you, you'd made a conscious decision when you went to the audition um, at the, at the was it the Royal School of Music or something, was it there? Royal you College of Music in London. Royal yeah. College of Music. And you encountered Obviously, you encountered players of a, a higher level than yourself. Um, 
what, what was that experience like? Because obviously you, you were able to get in, you know, you when you passed your audition to get in, um, was there, did, did that happen for you gradually? Were they kind of going, listen, I'm not cutting it here? Or what, what was that experience like for you? Well, it, it uh, for me, it, it was almost instant, actually. Right, okay. Uh, the, the, the level that I thought was a good standard to get into mm -hmm. a Saturday orchestra. I was obviously nowhere near. And, right. uh, but, you know, in all, in all fairness, the, the other people who were auditioning were absolutely unbelievably fantastic. Right, okay. and, and I, I honestly wouldn't have deserved a place there, but, but um, I, I didn't come away disheartened at all. I, uh -huh. I actually just came away thinking, okay, I need to think about something else uh, right. because it's it's not going to work for me. Um, uh -huh. But I, I, it, it wasn't an, uh, a period of my time where I thought I was completely, you know, squashed by the whole incident at all. Sure. It, it uh -huh. just made me think laterally, that's all. Okay. And that's then where obviously you were saying where you, you started to explore other options of staying in music, which then you landed the job with the oboe makers. What was that like in terms of, you know, walking up from the experience of I play an instrument to I've now decided to try and find a job making instruments? What was the apprenticeship like for you? Well, actually, the apprenticeship was uh, a not, not an apprenticeship. That that's right. that was that was the beauty of uh, working for Howarth. The the boss there they they took you as you were, and if you looked like you were doing well, they would move you on to another process. So you right. you eventually worked through the entire process of making an oboe from taking a, a piece of wood right up to the the key making and then putting the pads in um, a, a lot and. Because you have that full experience, there are areas where you feel more comfortable in. Uh -huh. And I was actually more comfortable with uh, the key making side of things. Right. Okay. So that I, that's one of the areas that you know that I I like to think that I do well in, um, and it's it's something that I've I've carried on throughout uh, my 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 career. Yeah. No, and and where did the where did the whole idea of flutes and stuff come from because obviously i want to talk to you a bit about the the flutes that you make um in terms of the b flat flutes that, that we're aware of here in the northern ireland bond scene but how did you end up getting involved in that what was your kind of like first introduction to the bond scene here in northern ireland my first introduction was actually through bands not being able to find people to repair their instruments Right. Okay. So I don't know how it happened, but every now and again, I'd get a call from a guy and say, you know, we've got 20 flutes. We've nowhere to get them fixed. And we've heard that you're, you could look after them. So I started right. looking after a few bands flutes. Um, I think one of the first bands was a uh, Newton arts. Um, they used to send me all their old Miller Wixes. Um, okay. So, that's I think that was my first introduction to actually seeing the flutes. I, I didn't even really know what they were, to be perfectly honest. I, I, just, okay. thought they, I just thought they were little flutes and they were they were B flat. I had no idea whatsoever about 
the the scene or anything like that but hey these flukes kept turning up and i was repairing them so it was okay that was fine okay so then you got a wee bit of word of mouth then if you're obviously doing a good job with you know sorting the flutes out the, the alert like the likes of the, those bonds were but they were obviously passing your name on to people and that kind of grew into something else then yeah it did uh i got a call from uh the guys at miller wicks um, right they had just purchased all the equipment from uh, johnny wicks right which turned up in their workshop and it was a i gather it was a bundle of stuff and they kind of had not the best idea of how to to put the stuff together uh-huh. i mean i know paul well it's it's no secret uh, but um, paul contacted me and said this is too crazy we can't do this can you help us out so they came over to my workshop in norfolk and we uh-huh. talked through uh, the design of the original design and uh, we talked about how um, you know it would be possible for people to put the instruments together in a in a more uh, with less skill. Let's put it that way. You know, right, okay. because because I, I I eventually I designed a set of keys for them which could allow them to put the the instruments together from their own workshops. Okay. Yeah, because they they took over what used to be what was called Miller Wicks London, isn't that right? They took over That's right. That's that, right. that business there. Because I, I remember I had a had a very intricate um, covered key flute from Miller Wicks London that had a very strange system um, and attached. It was almost it was closer to a boom system than it was to the simple system that we we're used to. And what I found was that my um, the C key and then the sort of the B flat key or whatever, there wasn't enough space in between them, and they kept catching on each other. Yeah. And I ended up having to send, I ended up sending my, that flute off to get fixed, I don't know, about, maybe about 20 times before I sold it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but, but th- thankfully, we're, thankfully the, 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 some of the, the cover key flutes that are, that are in, in a, available today are a lot easier to use than, than those things. So that was your that was your first one of your first introductions was so Bonds were asking you to fix flutes, and then Miller Wicks from Kilkeel asking you for a wee bit of help in regards to to setting their own workshop up in terms of production methods and so on, and then were you starting to be aware of what the Bonds were like and stuff after you know what Bonds were there what they were doing or how how did that develop? No, not at all, not at all. Right. Um, Again, word had obviously got around, and I was contacted by uh, a gentleman called Brian Crossett, who is or was with um, Sir George White Memorial Bank. Right, okay. And he phoned me up and said, "You know, could you design and make a flute which is like the Crown AZ?" Right. So I said, "I don't know anything about them. Thank you very much for your interest." <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> Well, the next month he phoned me again. Right. He said, "Have you thought about it?" And I said, "Yeah, I have." And the answer still, I don't know anything about these flutes. <laughs> so this this went on for six months, actually. Right. Okay. So eventually he beat me down, and I said to him, "Look, I tell you what, I'll have a look at these instruments, 
and I'll make a batch of five. Right. And the five, I knew that a batch of five would cover my cost just for making all the masters and the patterns um, mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe some of the reamers. And I said that, even if they're not very good, you're going to have to buy them because I'm investing a lot of time yeah. and effort into this. And uh, he was absolutely convinced. He said, they will, they'll, they'll be fine. They'll be great. Right. So I did a lot of research and Brian sent me some instruments to measure and what have you. Uh, and I made five instruments. Well, I sent okay. the first one out to Sir George White. And from that first instrument, they ordered 32 straight Ooh. off. Right. Wow. Um, so that's how basically that's how it all started. I mean, again, the word got out and uh, Omar ordered 21 straight away. Kenny, Kenny Porter uh, yeah. contacted me and said, you know, we've heard about these flutes. We'll have some. So yeah. you know, it, was, it was great. And it basically it, it went, over, went, went on from there. Brilliant. So you, obviously you were like kind of you. You had to be. I mean, obviously it took you a wee bit of time to kind of obviously they, as you say, they ground you down to the the come into this because the crown eyes head is almost like it's like the holy grail of B flat flutes, isn't it? I mean, it's like it's the you know model that people want to replicate all the time. So did did they end up sending you some crown eyes heads, or did you get a hold of any to kind of see what they were? They were like and did you or what, what way did you go about researching that um yeah i i'm not sure where the crown az's came from they may have came from sir george white but i mean i had the uh the crown az uh rudel can't actually made a b flat flute as well uh -huh. um so I, I i measured a few and the interesting thing about the crown az's were they were all different there right. was, it was and they were, they're there are good crown AZs and there are really, really terrible crown AZs as well. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the the ones that worked the best were actually the ones that obviously weren't played that much because they're in such fantastic condition. Okay. The, the ones that were um, that uh, had so much wear on them, they uh, they've kind of blown out really, but they've still got the name. You see, and this is this is what the uh, the players are after. They they see the name, but, you know, I do say don't be fooled by the name. You know, give the flute a play because some of them yeah. are really, really not good at all. But Okay. Um, Is that the yeah. only factor, Pete? Is that the only factor in terms of how the, the wear and tear that the flute has taken? Are there other things that make a good crowny's head and a bad crowny's head? I, th uh, I think it is almost entirely the wear and tear. Okay. Because um, the the embouchure hole kind of gets blown out and uh, it loses that crispness to it so you lose right. the edges so it means you know when you when you're striving for that high a or that high f you really got to work for it because it just doesn't want to pop out because mm -hmm. you know, everything, everything about the embouchure has become rounded over and um i know a lot of players can still do it because they've owned their they've owned their flutes for 20 30 years so yeah. they know the flute inside out but um, there, there are better flutes out there. That's all I can say. Right. Okay. <laughs> you, you're setting the cat amongst the pigeons there, Peter. And I, I, so know, I know. <laughs> hey, hey, 
hey, I just I just make them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously you've start you start making fruits for some bonds, whatever else. You've obviously been there. You, that's hopefully has led you maybe checking out some parades and stuff. Then you, you've been over here watching some of the bonds and things. What, what kind of how did how did you find that or how did that all come about for you? Well, I came over to uh, to holiday in Northern Ireland. I think I was really trying to find the dates, but it's about 2007, 2008. Right. And I happened upon the Black Saturday parade. Right. Okay. Um, and that was when I was really, truly gobsmacked at how many bands there were. Uh -huh. you know, I'd, I'd been talking to some of the band guys and the guys who'd been buying the flutes and said, you know, you should come over here and see the bands. There's there's lots of them. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but I, I was actually really really shocked at the amount of bands there were. I mean, accordion bands, pipe uh -huh. bands, um, and obviously the marching, the uh, the flute bands as well. Uh -huh. it, it was literally just one band after another, you know, this cacophony of sound that you can <laughs> hear in the distance until a band is nearly opposite you and then you can hear this, the tune that they're playing and then uh -huh. they go and it's it, it was absolutely fascinating it was an, an absolute eye-opener right okay I, I think that's when i realized hey this market is quite big actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it isn't it i mean people that's the other thing is people don't realize just how big the marching bond scene is here in northern ireland you know i mean you think about this the size of this place i mean we only have a really have a population here of like just just shy of two million people yeah. um you know and and in the midst of that, there there are, in terms of you know the tradition that I come from, there's something like 620 between 620 and 650 bonds uh, across all of those genres that you're mentioning, and that, that's thousands upon thousands of people who are involved every week in in making music as part of a marching band. And you know, one of the other guys that we'd spoken to was Stu Warmington, you know, from the British Drum Company. And when he said when he came over, he was he went to his first parade here was one in a place called Market Hill. And uh, and he said like he had never seen anything like it in his life. Because I think on that, that's one of the biggest, you know, local parades of the year. And I think there was maybe like a hundred bonds out at this parade. And it's like kind of going, how do I not know anything about this? You know, as an actual Royal Marine, how do I not know that this is going on and all these bonds are in existence? It does kind of blow people away. Well, I mean, the other thing that... Uh... I found ama amazing. Obviously, uh, I knew a couple of the guys in, in some of the bands. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other thing that really surprised me was the, the sense of community mm. with, with, the with all the bands. Now, I know there may be some personal gripes with some of the bands, but as a general rule, you know, all the bands seem to be friendly to each other. Uh, mm -hmm. the, obviously, there is a, an element of competition because there's generally a best band of the day kind of trophy going around and mm -hmm. and it's great to you know to win it i suppose but um the i was really shocked at you know you hear these stories about you know northern ireland and the troubles and people uh you know and when i see the band scene it's kind of 
it's it does it's not there. All these troubles are not there at all. Yeah, you know, uh, they it's just a very friendly community. Yeah, and what was it that highlighted that for you for you personally? Was it so? What was it? Things that you were observing, or was it just the fact that you had these relationships with? guys in the bonds that you kind of think, oh my goodness, this is just amazing. What, what was it when you were seeing that kind of give you that idea that there's a real sense of community amongst the bonds? Um, I, th I think it was the fact that, uh, you know, I, I did know a couple of, couple of the guys and the first thing they did was introduce me to some more people you right. know, and introduce me to some other band leaders, you know. Uh, th there wasn't this sort of like, oh, you know, this this guy's come over here to sell flutes, huh? You know, it, it was, it was, it was actually, you know, this guy wants to make flutes and we should encourage it. And, uh, you know, uh, come and, come and meet some guys. And that, uh -huh. that's what, that's what surprised me. Um, certainly in the, in the industry that I've worked in before with oboes and clarinets, you know, it's, it's all secrets. You know, you don't tell anybody about anything, but, uh -huh. um, it, with with the band scene, it, I I feel it's it's a lot more open. Yeah, no. The, going back a few years, there would have been a lot more of a rivalry, you know, where people well, it wouldn't have been around instruments and stuff, but it would have been around keeping your tunes a secret, you know. So the melody bonds would have kept their tunes. Some people would have kept their tunes to themselves, you know, and don't let on that we're learning this tune. We don't want anybody else to know that we're we're learning this. I really kind of go, but these, these tunes are, you know, readily available to all sorts of people. It's not like they know they're they're brand new or whatever, you know, but it, there was that element. I remember that whenever we learned, whenever I was the one of the bonds I was in at first, and we, the first year that we learned a tune called, a, a march called the Queen of Battle, and it was like, keep it a secret. Don't even play this anywhere, you know. Make sure your windows are closed at home, you know, so that nobody hears that we're playing this tune. So it was it was that kind of thing. But when it came to things like instruments and where you get stuff and uniforms and all that kind of thing, people would, oh yeah, go to such and such, they're really good, or you know, talk to this person because they've got some great contacts in regards to that. But that's all changed now as well. You know, like you're saying, there's a real sense of openness, you know, right across the whole of the scene. It's like how can we get better where we know somebody who may be able to help? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, I've been over to uh, the Lisbon competition uh, three three or four times, and I also uh -huh. go to the um, the Shankill Road one at the end of the season. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the bands, you know, Melody, the, the, it seems that the people who want my flutes mostly are the Melody bands. Uh -huh. And um, you know they're 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 quite competitive in that way, like like you say about the uh, you know the tunes and making sure that uh, they've got the edge over somebody else. Uh, yeah. But I mean that's healthy competition. I mean that's fine. Yeah, that's it. I mean we talk. I always talk about it on the podcast. But iron sharpens iron. You know that you know people you know get motivated when they hear a bond doing so well, and some of the bonds here have really stretched. You know what what the flute can actually do here. You know, I think of the likes of the William King, um, the the Prayer of Balan Ron. You know, really pushing you know the flutes to the to the, the limits. You know of of what they can actually do with them. You know, one of the things that really always impresses me about William King is that they don't use anything else other than B flat flutes. But that the range of parts that they have and the tone that they're able to generate from their instruments to, to cover that wide 
you know, musical spectrum in terms of covering what would be considered a bass part, F parts, or, you know, other things, just from a set of B flats is, is outstanding. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, I think uh, they they use entirely Crown AZs, don't they, as well? I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. I think there's the possibility. I wouldn't want a speaker to turn and say that they're using <laughs> instruments that they're not. There's a few, yeah. there's, only, there's not too many bands here have a full set of Crown AZs, you know what I mean? And one of them actually isn't a melody bond. That's one of the bonds that does have a, a, a full set of Crown AZs here is the White Rock. Um, oh, okay. Yeah the, yeah, the White Rock, they have a, a full set of Crowny's Heads. They're one of the, as I say, one of the few bonds that I know of that actually do have a full set of them and stuff there. So I'm not 100% sure what flutes the the the, the William King are, are, are sporting, but whatever they're playing, they, they, do, they do it bloody well. <laughs> <laughs> so... So talk to me a wee bit about then about the bonds and the musicians that you provided instruments for here in Northern Ireland because you obviously started off with one and I'm sure it hasn't stayed that way. I'm sure you're providing for quite a number of bonds. So who who are you providing for? Um, yeah, okay. Um, so George White, they've uh, they've actually taken two sets. They're, they're one of the only bands that uh, is now playing concert pitch B flats. Right. Okay. Uh, and this and this came about because they they, they want to interact with other musicians, not you know, not just the drums. Yeah. Um, so they they asked they commissioned me to make um, I suppose what you would call low pitch because obviously all the right. um, flutes that um, the bands play are at four fifty two and a half, which is which is technically high pitch, which is super high really. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so. But the prob problem with that is that you can't play with other instruments particularly easily. Yeah. Mostly that's not an issue, you know, for a lot of bands. But occasionally, you know, some of the bands want to integrate with other musicians. Um, Omar, of course. Uh, Ken Castle. All right, uh, okay. You'll have to excuse my pronunciation, but is it Skeg? <laughs> Skeg? Skeg, it, it, it depends. They 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 they'll answer to anything. To be honest with you, you know. So okay, <laughs> some people call them skew or, or skeg, as far as I'm aware. Skeg, as far okay. as I know. Uh, Clocker, Star of the Road, Ballinafay, Derry Oak, uh, Lem Big Orange and Blue, Ballinahinch, uh, Stranokum, Lisbon Fusiliers, Castle right, Dawson, okay. Hounds of Ulster. They're, they're, right, okay. the, they're the um the, the ones who've taken multiples. Right. A lot of a lot of bands will just take the piccolo. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, because obviously piccolos are quite hard to find in decent condition, and yeah. the tuning of them is kind of actually the tuning. It's hit and miss. It's hit and miss. It, let's put it this way the tuning is about as crazy as the guys who want to play it the guys and girls who want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> said nothing said nothing <laughs> well i mean the uh the piccolo players they're, they're the good ones they are prima donnas and so they should be because they've got a tough job yeah and definitely i mean and a good a good a good piccolo player makes it seem effortless don't they you know what i mean it doesn't you don't feel like you're struggling with it and I, and, I, and they've got a great way of being able to to blend with the rest of the bond rather than an overtake and stuff and that's that for me is always the saying of a great piccolo player is that 
that it's not overpowering it. They 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 complain in a way that blends with the rest of of what's being performed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've also provided for Scottish bands as well. I mean, you've got okay. the Saracen Flute Band, uh-huh. Pride of the North, uh, Cambers Lang. I think there's two bands in Cambers Lang. I think there's, the, there's the Volunteers, and then there's another another group in Cambers Lang as well. I yeah, think, they, right? they they've both taken uh, my flutes, which is great. They got Shield Hill and uh, Blackridge Thistle. Again, they're, right. they're the they're the bigger bands that have taken uh, the instruments. I mean, quite often. Um, individuals will buy uh-huh. uh, buy their own flutes you know because they feel that maybe the flute they've been given is not really what what they want so they uh, they, they they buy their own flutes so there's yeah. there's a lot of a lot of other guys um, who, have, who have bought flutes as well so um, yeah I mean it's it, it's funny it's, it goes in fits and starts because when I was extremely busy with uh, making B flats, uh-huh. Um, at one stage, I made over a hundred. Right. Okay. Year. Ooh. Uh, you know that's that's and and for just myself in my workshop, you know that's that's quite some going. That is indeed. But me. um, you know, it's kind of cooled down a bit now, and the guys who've got my flutes, you know, they they hang on to them for a while, which is fine. Maybe bands have to look into funding and what have you to get full uh, sets of flutes. But, but I mean, that suits me. I mean, because, um, you know, I, it was great to start with, but I'm not sure I want to make 100 flutes every year now. <laughs> <laughs> no, especially if it's just you. You know what I mean? That's, that's it. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's that's a serious amount of, of work there. Peter, just rolling back there, you talked a bit about, you know, um, this concert pitch B flat, you know, with the lower pitch um, thing. Talk me through what what's the main difference between that flute and what's considered to be the high pitch flute? Because you know the high pitch flute, technically, while it's called a B flat, am I right in saying that it's not really in the key of B flat? It's, it's kind of is it the, those higher pitches? Are they are they not are they closer to like A than B flat? Or what way does what way does what, what way does that work? Why does a a high pitch flute not blend in with other instruments? Um. Uh, be- because of the um yeah okay that's an interesting question uh, <laughs> okay concert concert standard concert pitch which all orchestras will play to is now basically 440 hertz to right. 442 right okay, okay. so uh the 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 B, the high pitch instruments are 452 so that basically just makes them high it's still a you know the the note is still the same, it's still B flat, but it's probably on a concert scale. It's only just a B flat, like you say. It's it's closer to an A than it is a B flat. Um, okay. But I mean, historically, this has always been the case with um, marching instruments, um, uh-huh. and brass bands were the same. It was it was just believed that you know having a higher pitch would make the instruments sing out better. Uh huh. And then the low, the lower pitch obviously obviously it's closer to the exact note that you're yes. you know so than 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 the, the higher pitches so that it means that as you're saying then with a wider range of instruments then you can play it's easier to play alongside those instruments because I know there was some I know I've heard of some bonds that they were looking to play along with sort of like brass bonds and stuff 
and some people were getting some bands were getting either their you know the 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 board extended or something or that the flute was being extended in length and stuff in order to, to fit in with that is that it's that's a normal process or what's what's no, the story it's there? not a normal process but it is a, it is something that can kind of work especially when you've got three piece instruments uh, uh -huh. you can pull the head out uh, the only problem is the head's virtually falling out before you can actually get it to pitch and right. um, the the problem with an instrument that's designed for one pitch but wants to try another is it's always a compromise so you might get the bottom end to tune in beautifully but as soon as you start going into the second register it's kind of going all over the place right okay um, so ultimately you know it, one size doesn't fit all you, you know you've right, got okay. a high pitch instrument or a low or a constant uh -huh. pitch instrument Brilliant. So talk us through the range of flutes that you make, because obviously you do, you know, you don't just do one particular flute. You do, you've, you've a range of flutes that are available. What what ones are available that, that bonds may be able to buy or be interested in? Yeah, obviously the, the B flat, uh, my, the, the flagship model for me is, is my own crown instrument. Uh, sort of named in, in, uh, in respect of the, the original crown. Um, I also make um, a coronet as well, which is just a two-piece instrument. So it hasn't got the adjustable tuning slide uh -huh. and it hasn't got a lined head as well. But right. it's, it works off exactly the same bore. It's not, I mean, it's made with the same precision, the same tooling as the crown, except that it's a, it's a two-piece instrument. Uh, Sometimes some of the guys ask me if, if I can just do three keys on them. I think one band even asked just for two. But um, mm -hmm. but uh, in the end, it, it, they're, they're just the five-key coronet flute. So that's the B-flat yeah. range. And then I've got the piccolo as well. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, the F flute. <clears throat> excuse me. The F flute. Uh, I mean, that's the one that I really think is, for me, as as a non-B-flat flute player, you know, the F flute is the closest for me to, that comes to, like, playing a concert-type flute. And I've right, actually okay. done quite a lot of work on the F flute uh, to get the embouchure a lot better, bigger in size, so you can get a, uh, more volume to the mm -hmm. note, because... The, the problem with the uh, the bass flute and the F flute was that they they were just sort of sleeping in the background, weren't they? Yeah, and yeah. So um, yeah. It, you need an instrument that can actually sort of punch above its weight, as it were. So the, I, yeah. I feel that the F flute that I've developed, the head joint on it is is one of the best head joints on, on the whole range of the instruments. Yeah. Um, I also make the bass flute, but... To be perfectly honest, I mean, I think I've sold two or three of them. They, they this just, is the E-flat bass flute, then, yeah? Yeah, that's, no, or, that's the, a B-flat bass. A B-flat bass, yeah, that's what I was saying, bass, a B-flat yeah, bass, the, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, the, um, somebody did ask me for the E-flat bass, which is kind yeah. of in between, but I, I kind of thought, well, I'd probably only sell three of those in my life. So right. it, the, these are rare beasts that occasionally come out of the closet when somebody's got a um some part music for it but uh, sure. as a as a general 
run-of-the-mill instrument, I don't think they see the light of day too often. No, I don't think so. I don't think there's too many bands playing that full range of that full range of flute. I think if you're going anything in terms of multiple flutes, you're really looking at it's B flat piccolo and F's is really as far as it it goes for most bands these days, rather than as you say, including the B flat bass and including the E flat bass as well. There, you know, it's um, you know definitely. But it, it, it's interesting you mention that there because I, I actually picked up one of the Crown F flutes there not that long ago, and uh, the difference that I that I found in playing it, and I had an, an old, I, I know this old F flute that I had picked up. I don't even know who made it, but what I found was that what you were talking about there was the embouchure on the the older one that I had that I don't know the make of was a bit thinner, you know, a bit shorter, and it wasn't as wide. And when you get down to the bottom end, you know, when you're playing in that low, you know, that bottom register, and if, it just sounded really wispy and not really full at all. Whereas the flute that I've just got, I literally got it about a month ago, and you can tell the difference straight away, at, in that, especially in that really low bottom end, you can tell that it'll sit a bit differently in regards to alongside other flutes. Yeah, I think um, flute making has kind of moved on. I mean, I've seen it with concert flutes. I make uh, concert mm -hmm. head joints as well. And when I first started making them sort of 30 years ago, you know, the, the height of the the actual lip plate, we call it the chimney and the riser, mm -hmm. um, that tended to be less than five millimetres. Uh, and now virtually every maker makes them over five millimeters now right. this is also due to the fact that players have got a lot better as well mm. um you know because having a lower chimney height means the instrument can be quite sweet but it lacks power uh -huh. uh, but the problem with a very high um chimney is that it's got loads of power but it takes a lot to control it and that's the difference yeah. and, and as players have got better they can control it so much better and they can get yeah. very good high end as well as a you know a, a really punchy bottom end to the flute as well and i think this is reflected with um even marching flutes and that's one of the things i've tried to carry on with my own f flute is using what i've learned from the concert uh flute uh -huh. head, head making and transferring it over to the um the, the marching flutes as well yeah, because you you have a you don't just have the the two piece and then the coronet. You also have another B flat that you have, which is a bit more that it has a lip plate on it as well, doesn't it? So because I know you have a straight head and then you have one with uh with the with the lip on it as well, don't you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. In actual fact, that is that that is the the one the go to flute now. Um, whereas before, you know, I, I call them the the traditional head, which is kind of the straight cylinder yeah. with the embouchure hole, and then um, I've got the the lip plate uh, type head. Now, I I did that originally because when when Sir George White asked me to to make an instrument, I thought, well, uh -huh. let's Let's not copy something exactly. Let's try right, and move okay. it on a bit. So that's why I create, created that. It's, it's something I do with my own uh, wooden concert head joints anyway. So I thought, well, sure. okay, we'll try, we'll try and get a little lip plate on there as well. Uh -huh. And again, that, that adds to the sound. It also gives you your, your, um, your lips a very firm place to go. 
Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, when you've just got a cylinder to uh, approach, um, you know, wh where's the onshore hole? Is it here? Is it there? You know, who knows? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, so that, that um, I, and I think that also makes my flute distinctive mm. in, in its look as well. You know, there, yeah. there are a lot of bands, guys, who go, oh, yeah, he's they're playing Pete Worrell flutes, Worlds. you know, because yeah. it's, it's obvious, you know. Yeah, though there is, there's an element of that, and I think what you're saying there as well is that, you, you know, that that can it can help with people's technique content. You know, with that, you know, the the lip plate on that can help people with their their technique in terms of playing. Whereas sometimes without it, like you're saying, is your 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 can you because of the nature of a marching band, you're not going to hit the exact same spot all the time every time you're lifting and putting the flute. And sometimes the lip plate with that helps with that positioning, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I hope it does. Um, I mean, certainly uh, I find playing concert flute because I, I played I played flute for uh, many, many years. And uh, yeah, I, it just comes natural to you, you know, to put your put mm -hmm. to put your bottom lip on the the embouchure, uh, on the actual lip plate itself. So I just thought, why not? Why shouldn't these marching flutes have it as well? Yeah. Cool. The other thing that you have is one of one of the flutes that you have with that your top range is you've got some intricate key work done on some of them, don't you? You know, there's some people just come. There's the straight normal uh, keys, and then you've the one with there's like an engraving kind of thing on them as well. Is that come from your the the oboe days of crafting nice keys and having something? You know, what where did where did where did that all the inspiration for the decorative keys come from? Well, actually, that that comes from uh, a history of flute making. Uh, right. If you go back many, many years, talking about uh, concert flutes of, of years ago, you know, the flute playing back in the day was a gentleman's pastime. Right. And gentlemen wanted to show show off to the ladies, you know, that they could play the flute. But also, they wanted a beautiful instrument, so okay. it was quite common to have to see engraved keywork, very, very fancy keywork. Uh -huh. uh, and somebody approached me and said, "You know, can you do some engraving?" Right. And I thought, "Well, why not? It could look quite look could look quite neat." Uh, uh -huh. So, I, I actually commissioned the first one I did, um, and that was that's that's actually on my website. Some pictures of that. Uh -huh. um, I commissioned a, uh, a qualified engraver to do that work, and uh, he he just took some simple thumbnail sketches from me and right. elaborated it. Um, but subsequently, I've been able to do my own. Um, we call it diamond drag engraving. Okay, so I need right. I need a template and what have you. But I make I make all that stuff, um, so I can do very simple engraving. It's not uncommon for X. Uh, military men to come come to me and ask for their you know their squad number or whatever they they, they actually want them on the bands and stuff like that or uh -huh. quite common is their is their army nickname is they they quite like that right, okay. as well so uh -huh. yeah i can i do a bit of engraving uh, it's it's not my forte but sometimes right. the effects can be really good no, I, I, I think it's quite a strike. And looking through, I mean, obviously, you know, um, having looked at your website and I, I as I say, an order of fruit from you not that long, a, a, a wee while ago. And I was like kind of contemplating where it was, for me, it was like going, I need something quick. 
and <laughs> you you were able to you were able to turn around it, it turn it around pretty quickly for me, which I, I, I really appreciate. And then I was like looking at the ones with the engraved keys, like going, oh, that'd be brilliant. You know, but I was like, can I go on? I just want something. I need something quickly because I need something to fit in with the band that I'm playing with. You know what I mean? So, but they do look, they do look absolutely fantastic. I have to say. Yeah, I mean, they do look, especially the uh, that the first one. In actual fact, I can't beat the first one that was engraved by a professional engraver. Uh-huh. I mean, that that is, it's just head and shoulders above what I can do. You know, he is a he is just another artist in in engraving and he is absolutely brilliant at what he does but um the like all these things you know it comes at a cost you know you you've got to pay mm. for his work and he, he's, he's very good so he's quite yeah. popular as well well that's it but there's that old saying is you get what you pay for you know what i mean if you you pay 60 70 pound for your flute you yeah. know <laughs> don't expect to get too much for it you know what i mean it, it's yeah. one of those it's one of those things what makes a quality flute for you? What and I suppose the other thing that, that we're maybe touching on there, Peter, is what makes we've already touched on a wee bit, but what makes your stuff stand out? You know, so what makes a quality flute from your perspective, and what makes your your flute stand out from the rest? Uh, I think what makes a quality flute for me, uh, not necessarily one that I've made, but one that actually has its has a character of its own. Um, has the ability for you to put your own character in the instrument, you know, um, has got a a forthright sound because, you know, the the idea that people want a lovely, beautiful, sweet-sounding flute is great, but the reality is when you're in a band, and I used to be in a jazz band playing flute, Mm. you need to stand out. So you've got to have that attack um, from the head joint. So I think uh-huh. for me, that's what I was looking for when I was trying to create a, um, a, a marching flute, is that it, it had the ability to blend in, but it also has the ability to stand out as well. Yeah. So someone can push it and push it, but also just step back as well. Um, when it comes to what actually makes a decent flute, I think I think you can't really beat African blackwood as okay. the, the material of choice. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other materials which produce a sound, but I think for consistency, um, African blackwood really does take some beating. Um, uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm, I've made several other um, concert piccolos, simple system concert piccolos out of different woods, tulip wood, box right. wood. Uh, wood called Mopani, and they're, they're all great, and they all have their own sound. Uh-huh. They, they don't have that sort of quality that African Blackwood has. So, I mean, that is why it is still the wood of choice for virtually all woodwind instruments, clarinets, uh-huh. oboes, flutes still. So I think yeah. that, that, that makes a huge difference. The, the fact that I line the head with silver as well, um, I personally think it makes a difference. Um, I know that the the Millerwicks guys they they use nickel silver and brass. It produces a sound which I hope is distinctive for them, um, but it's not a sound that I personally um, 
I, I like the sound of silver. Right. Okay. I've come from a you know a flute a concert flute playing background. I like the the resonance that silver gives me. Nickel silver is really good. It's super bright as well. So uh -huh. if that's what you're looking for, then maybe that's what you need to go for. Brass, sure. brass is kind of in between the two, in between silver and nickel silver. Um, so, you know, there, there is, again, there's not one size that fits all. If uh -huh. the sound appeals to you, then there's no reason not to buy it purely because, you know, I want this one that's got silver in it. But it, yeah. it might not be the sound that you're after. That's the thing. Yeah. Though, and the other thing is that, that there's other there kind of there's requirements that need to be made for the importing of the, the, the black weed, isn't there? You know, is there something there's regulations and stuff that, you know, about how much you can bring in and how it's stored and all this kind of stuff, isn't there? You, there's a lot more to it than just meets the apple here. Listen, I'll just go and order some Indian black weed here. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? No, it's not too bad now, actually. It was a little right. while ago, about five years ago, there was um, there was this thing called CITES on all African blackwoods. Right, um, okay. Purely because it was in the Dalbergia family. Now, right. Dalbergia also covers rosewoods. Now, rosewoods, certain rosewoods were very, very endangered. But it then turned out that... Um, Delbergia melanoxalon, which is African blackwood, uh -huh. isn't actually endangered at all. I mean, right. in, in in places like Tanzania where it's grown, they use it as firewood. Uh, okay. So it's it's maybe a misconception that it's it's a, a rare wood. It's not rare. It's actually forested. You know, they 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 actually um, they actually plant it. The difference is that the crop takes sixty years to mature. Right. So, okay. So one family may may only see one uh, mature crop in its life, but they do right. carry on, and it, it is a farmed material. I, you can now really only buy African blackwood through a, um, a particular source now. Right. It's okay. It's got to have the right certifi certification to it. So any blackwood that comes into the country now has to be certified. So it's, it's not as though you can sort of pick it up on the cheap or whatever. It, uh -huh. there, there's no way around that now. So, so um, w which is a good thing because, it, you know, hopefully it means that the people who are selling it are getting a fair price for their wood yeah, you yeah. Know, and um, the, the suppliers and the, are down the chain and everybody's happy, hopefully. Yeah, no, and 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 in terms of whenever you get it, can you can you can you use it straight away, or do you have to have? Is there a process that you have to go through with the wood before you start turning it into into flutes? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, this this is the a bit. This is the bit that if you're in a big company, the accountants don't like. And right. I, know, okay. I know from experience. You know, uh, my the the company I used to work for. We would buy wood up to 10 years in advance of using it. And right. you buy a quantity of wood every year. So you've always got 10 years worth of stocking. Okay. And you can't really use it uh, for another three or four years. Now, right. I've, I've actually just bought some, some wood. Now, I know that's been rested for five years. But that's going to be sitting in my cupboard doing nothing um, for another 
for another three. Well, right, I say okay. doing nothing. It's it's maturing. It's it's settling. It's you know it's aging. The the problem with working wood that's fresh is it wants to move everywhere. Right. And okay. You do not want that. You want the stability that African blackwood can give you. Uh -huh. So um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a little while before those instruments, those blocks of wood in my um, storage, actually get turned into flutes. But I do the same thing as the larger companies just on a smaller scale i try to yeah. buy wood every two to three years um, in enough quantities to guesstimate how many instruments i mean it's not just i mean you imagine it's not just marching flutes that i'm making so i'm, uh -huh. I'm buying various uh lengths of wood and different diet different billet sizes for the other instruments that i'm making um yeah you don't you really do not want to start messing with the wood straight away yeah okay and i suppose that's an odd thing whenever people you know i you hear people talk oh it's going to take such and such a time for you know an order of flutes to come in that all has to be weighed up doesn't it in terms of what they have available here that is is going to be good to work for that's going to create the quality instrument and yet sometimes like you said you had a hundred in a year or whatever else you know and the demand that sometimes can be there for flute making and people don't understand well listen this isn't just as straightforward as how long do i pull this piece of blackwood off the shelf here and i just make you a flute there is a heck of a lot more to it you know and then obviously you're crafting your own keys etc aren't you you're making your own keys and everything so it's a real kind of artisan process i suppose that you that you're going through to create an individual instrument yeah it certainly is you you've got to I mean, certainly with the wood, the wood is the, the biggest headache, not not obtaining it or working it. It's actually working out how many instruments that you kind of guess will be sold that year. So mm -hmm. how many instruments you want to prep. I mean, years got, have gone by where I've prepped up two, three hundred sets of joints um, and maybe sold 50 or 60 instruments. Well, that's right, okay, okay because um, it means that, you know, the, the wood has been prepped and it's got longer to sit. And um, the thing about working most woods, and certainly African blackwood, is you can't do everything in one go. Right. So the first stage that I would actually do would be to, it comes in a square billet, okay? It's, right. We call them billets. It, it's um, a, a rectangle of wood. Um, so that's put on the lathe, and it's made round. It's just uh -huh. a cylinder. And then I put a, a small hole through the middle, maybe four or five millimeters, basically no bigger than the smallest part of the bore. And then that will sit on the shelf for another year. Right. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. Um, so then the following year, I'll grab that lot and um, then I'll start making the bore to the actual size that I need. But I'll okay. make sure it's slightly undersized because I, I don't want to go crazy. So taking away material on the inside of the instrument means it's exposing a larger surface area. So you've got the outside surface area and the inside now. So more right. air can get to it. But you don't want the air getting to it too quickly or any moisture leaving it too quickly. So, again, it goes back in the, in the cupboard for another year. Right. And this, this process continues for about four years until we actually get a, a joint that which is wow. ready to use. Um, but once they're actually 
once they've gone through that stage, they can sit at that stage for years and years and years. But it's just that initial two, three years, uh -huh. um, you've got to you've got to treat the wood with, with some respect. Even then, sometimes you, you do all of that and it still kicks you in the face and and uh, cracks and splits and what have you. Uh -huh. But, hey, you know, that's 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 what happens when you work with wood. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, and at the end of the day, when you think about it, I mean, we're we're trying, you're trying to kind of craft it into something that you want to have, and the wood can sometimes be gone. You have no chance; yeah. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> Absolutely, Brilliant. yeah. So, uh, one of the things that we get asked a lot about, you know, and, we're, and I suppose one of the reasons, whenever I was trying to, to think of new episodes for for this season, people were asking about flute care, and it's one thing. You know, there's lots of different and opinions. In regards to what's the best way to look after your your flute, what would you say is a good care regime for um, a flute, and what should what things should maybe people avoid in terms of doing with their flute? Yeah, okay. Um, let's let's look at things to avoid in general. Anyway, uh huh. A lot of guys don't put cork grease on. There's only one cork joint on your instrument. Just put a bit of grease on it, guys and girls, uh, <laughs> because it'll keep that cork nice and fresh. Always use cork grease, not Vaseline. Mm -hmm. Vaseline uh, will kill the glue underneath, and then your cork will just fall off, uh, which uh -huh. is even worse. Um, if, you, if your cork becomes loose and you still need to carry on and you, you can't get to a repairer, PTFE tape is brilliant. Right. Okay. Don't use insulation tape, please, or or uh, or cellar tape. But, right. But um, PTFE is is pretty good because you can actually just unwind it, and then when when someone wants to repair the um, the cork, it just comes off instead of this sticky, gooey mess, which yeah, electrical yeah. tape leaves or gaffer tape. That was one of the worst ones I've seen. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, look look after your cork. Um, if you feel so inclined to oil your instrument, and I say this with caution because I've seen <laughs> a lot of instruments that have been oiled. I mean, I've seen instruments where guys and girls have dipped the entire instrument, pads, keys, everything in linseed oil and just Ooh. let it drip, drip dry. Oh. Okay. Okay. Uh, if you buy one of my crowns, it comes with its own cleaning rod. Now, the mm -hmm. reason I provide a cleaning rod is because I haven't managed to source one that's the right size. And it's just the right, the one that I make is just the right size to pull through the bore with a very small um, rectangle of cloth on it. Now, you, what you should do is have one just to swab out to clean the water out. That's your clean one. And then another one that you keep entirely just for a tiny bit of oil, bit of bore oil on there. And you right, keep okay. that in a little bag. And uh, when you want to give it a bit of a feed, just swap the cloth over and then just pull it over, pull it through. What you're looking for inside your bore is just a very, very she small sheen of oil. And you can see it through the holes, the finger holes. Uh -huh. If you see droplets, you've, it's too much. Okay. Right. Okay. So you just want a, a very light sheen over the um, 
on the inside of the instrument, leave it overnight to soak in, and then with another clean cloth, clean out the excess. You don't want the oil that's in there to dry or to, because it will start clogging. Right. If you want to, I actually sell my own ball oil. Um, others are available, some of them very good. Um, used to be a thing where guys would put, guys and girls would be putting linseed oil in. That used to be a thing. We kind of don't do that now. It um, it it builds up on the inside of the bore and it just changes the shape of the bore and the sound yeah. and everything. Yeah. So if you want if you want to use an oil, I use lemon oil. That's that's the one that I sell. Um, it's very clean. It's antibacterial. It's really thin, so it gets mm -hmm. in that wood, and and that's what you're trying to do. What you're yeah. trying to do is not stop the water getting into the wood you're actually trying to just slow it down sure you you won't stop the, you know because you're breathing down it all the time yeah yeah you, you're never going to stop that water vapor getting into that wood but you what you're trying to do is just slow it down and 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 allow that water to evaporate and dry off wood doesn't mind being wet but it eventually wants to be dry yeah. So um, that's that's the thing. If you're worried about your getting oil on your pads, um, what you can do is cut up some very small pieces of uh, tin foil, right. about forty millimeters square. Right. Okay. And then put it underneath the pad. So lift the key, put it underneath the pad, just ball it up so that it's so it basically contains the pad. So it means that the oil does not go on the pad. Don't get oil on the pad, please. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll just need changing because yeah. the oil will just harden the leather. So if you're worried yeah. about getting oil on the pads, just wrap a bit of cling film or a bit of tin foil around each pad and then oil the instrument. Tuning slide, pretty straightforward. Just give it a good wipe. You know, um, some people put oil on there well if that works for you it's it's okay it's okay it's not going to do it any harm um, but technically they should work dry and the reason sure. they don't work is normally because they've got a bit of dirt in there so that's why okay. you just need to clean it clean it off with a, a, a clean cloth make sure there's no grime in there and uh -huh. um, they should actually it should actually work dry but if it needs a bit of oil you know that's that, that's not a bad thing Sure. If you get a chance to pop the cork out of the, uh, the head, as long as you know where it goes when you put it back, uh -huh. um, that's not a bad thing because right. a lot of players don't take their corks out. So the, so the head joint, I mean, if you've ever seen inside a lot of these head joints, I mean, I know you guys like a drink, but hey, you know. <laughs> I mean... Uh, I've seen mushrooms in there. It's it's really quite gross, but uh, right. yeah, if you can, you know, just put pop the cork out, clean the inside of the head, get a cotton bud around the inside of the embouchure hole. Do not scrape it because you're then starting to change the hole. Yeah, change uh, the tone. Yeah, yeah. So get a cotton bud, you know, just with a bit of clean water, um, and then just 
because what will happen is that will soften the the gunge, as it were, and then uh -huh. get another another cotton bud to clean it out. Stick the cork back, like I say. Only do that if you know exactly where that cork where goes. Where it goes, yeah. Uh -huh. Because a lot of a lot of um, players don't know where it goes. Um, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, on virtually every marching flute, if you make up a stick with a measurement of twelve point four on it, and then you push your cork in, you push it past the. Okay, you put it in from the top, not the bottom. Put yeah. it in from the top push it past just to the edge of the embouchure hole and then with your marker stick push the marker stick up until the the line of 12.4 is exactly in the center of the embouchure hole and that's right, the okay. position you need um, right and i think that would be pretty universal for all b flat flutes i haven't right, come okay. across one that um, is slightly different so 12.4 that's the measurement you need to know. Dead on. And what about the wood and the keys? How about keeping your your wood clean, your keys clean? Okay. Uh, yeah. Don't oil the outside of the wood. Uh, you don't need to. Um, the human body is brilliant at producing its own oils, and uh, that that they're very good at actually protecting the instrument. Now, it, it doesn't hurt to to give the outside of the body a little bit of a wipe um after you've been playing that's the best time to actually try and just keep it maintained because mm -hmm. you've got all the your human grease and sweat on it and, yeah and you can you can use that to your advantage use a cloth like a t-shirt you know that's a good material to use and then just clean everywhere that you can see don't try and jam the cloth into you know tricky little areas just yeah. give it a good wipe uh, and that's fine Keywork, well, if you've got an instrument which is just nickel silver, um, you'll you'll struggle to keep the verdigris off it. You really will. But okay. Again, if you if you use a silver cloth, then that that'll clean the key. You don't need to scrub the key. You're uh -huh. literally just wiping it off. The thing about silver cloths is that they are very dusty. So right. when you get a brand new one take it outside give it a really really good shake and all uh -huh. the majority of the dust to come up and then you can start using it and you just again just use it just to wipe your keys uh -huh. and, and certainly with um with my own instruments they're silver plated so again use a silver cloth for it and um take it outside give it a good shake and then you can start using it they last for a long time so you can yeah. put it in a sealed bag and um, it'll be ready to go for the next time as well. Brilliant. I appreciate that one. That's, that's good stuff there. I'm sure there'll be lots of people taking some note on that. And I suppose the other thing we were talking prior to this is don't stick all, you were saying linseed oil, they'll be sticking olive oil down the flute either. You know, stay away from <laughs> that stuff. Yeah. Basically, anything that you should be using in the kitchen and general woodworking is not what we're, what, yeah. what we're after. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting you mentioned your boar oil with lemon oil because that kind of reminds me. I, I use a lamb, I'm a guitar player as well. And I have a lemon oil solution that I use for whenever I take the, the strings of when I'm restringing and I clean my, I clean my fretboard down. With a with a with a lemon oil um, uh, solution as well, so it's good that you're mentioning that as well. It makes a lot of makes a lot of sense, you know, because 
and I, and I love the smell of it afterwards as well. It's a nice kind of, it's a it's a nice kind of setup afterwards. So cool. Yeah, I think any of the um, and in actual fact, I mean, I personally prefer the lemon oil. I mean, it's got antibacterial properties as well, mm -hmm. um, especially on like a fingerboard, like you say. It leaves a, a beautiful sheen to it as well um, when, yeah. it's, when it's wet. When it's dry, it doesn't feel sticky at all. Um, so, you know, it's a really good oil. But in actual fact, you know, any of the citrus oils are pretty good at, at this this uh, sort of lubricating thing. I mean, yeah. I know guys have used almond oil before, olive oil. I mean, if, if you push any oils better than nothing but mm -hmm. you know th th there are shops that's what they're for you know just go yeah. buy go and buy the proper stuff you know <laughs> brilliant so one of the other things is pete obviously you've mentioned you make other instruments and i believe that you've won some awards recently for some of the things that you've made is that right yeah um i've won six awards actually um, this this is a competition that's run by the One-Handed Musical Instrument Trust, OMI. Right. Um, that was originally set up um, for to, to basically enable people with hand disabilities, either one hand or the, lost the use of a hand, or maybe had a stroke, a congenital illness, whatever, um, and basically allow them to continue playing music or actually start start music um, from a young age um, so they run a competition every couple of years and they're looking for musicians inventors makers to come up with ideas uh -huh. to uh, to get around the problem of you know if you've only got the use of one hand what instruments can you play uh -huh. um, so um, I've the first award that I got was for a descant recorder that that was actually designed over 30 years ago I did right. the design I did the design on that while I worked for okay. a, uh, somebody else but um, so it's great that it's actually now got recognition um, right. I mean I've been making those for 30 years you know in, in very tiny numbers really but uh -huh. hopefully some some you know people have enjoyed playing them um, so it's good that that was recognised. Um, uh -huh. the, the next one was for the bass recorder. Somebody Again, somebody commissioned me to make a bass recorder. So it's a, it's a, a different – it's a big recorder. So there's a lot, of, lot more key work to consider. So that, that was one of the uh, interesting ones to do. And I suppose the, the one that I, I'm, I'm proudest of is the one-handed clarinet. Right. So I actually designed a clarinet which could be played the full range uh, entirely wow. with just just one hand. Um, the, I mean, it's a particularly tricky instrument to to make for one hand because a lot of the woodwind instruments work on an octave, so you can overblow an octave. Uh -huh. uh, the the clarinet overblows a twelfth, so it made it really quite difficult. And that may whilst the clarinet itself is a relatively simple instrument to actually make an instrument one-handed that overblows a 12th was very, very challenging. But um, wow. I, I I managed to do it, and um, I'm glad to say, you know, that it was awarded and people have recognised it as a, a an instrument that could 
be played to a professional standard. Wow, brilliant. Brilliant. Well done. Well, that sounds, sounds amazing. I mean, I, I mean, I can't even contemplate, you know, the idea of one making me one making me own flute. Uh, you never made making instruments for people with one hand and still trying to stay true to the the actual tonal range of the instrument and stuff. That's just the, the whole other level of stuff for, from my perspective. You know what I mean? So, no happy days, man. It's good to kind of, you know, that that's the other thing, and I think you know that's really important about you know, the flutes that you make as well is that you're bringing a lot of experience from, you know, a lot of other areas in regards to your, it's not just one instrument that you're, you're making, you're, you're kind of invested in a lot of different types of instrument, you know, and I suppose those things can't help but influence what you do, you know, in terms of making good stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, 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 I've been an instrument maker for 40 years. I worked it out this afternoon, actually. Right. Uh, for 40 years. And I really I really can say that I actually enjoy getting up in the morning and coming into my workshop. Uh-huh. You know, obviously, there's there's laborious jobs. that there's, It's all part of. But I love the design process. Um, I really do. I, I'm, I'm currently involved in two or three design projects all musical instruments which i'm you know i'm glad to say um so i really do enjoy coming to work i mean you you, Uh couldn't couldn't get much better than this i i really i really do enjoy it and and also you're writing i like to draw inspiration from other people's instruments as well i look at a lot of instruments um i've I've been fortunate to travel to quite a few guys' workshops around the world um, okay. to see their kind of kit. I, I'm not talking about sort of stealing ideas. I'm just actually most of the time I'm looking for inspiration um, sure. to see, you know, how they do stuff and the processes they processes they use. Most of the time I can't actually use any of them because uh-huh. you know I'm just me on my in my workshop on my own. So I've got to think about that. But it, yeah. it's it's the design process that really intrigues me the most. Um, a lot of the times when I've finished the design, because some of the designs take so long to actually get to production, uh-huh. I've almost lost interest, and I'm ready to right. move on to the ready to move on <laughs> to the next three. You know. <laughs> oh dear! Well, I suppose when you're waiting for wood to mature for four and five years, there. I mean, you, you're probably... <laughs> Bit <laughs> of some level of patience there, but I get that. Like, kind of go, let's get on to something, let's do something. <laughs> in terms of your flute making, then what does what's the future hold for you in regards to that? Have you any developments or anything that you're doing new in the pipeline, or is it all let's stay keep things as it is? No, there, there's lots of new stuff coming. There really is. Um, during the lockdown, I was involved in a team. And we, this was uh, looking at accessibility and disability and what have you. So uh-huh. they looked at my clarinet and said, the thing is, Pete, you've made something great, but it's so expensive that people can't afford it. And I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, it's just me. I can't make them any quicker. And that's uh-huh. what they cost, I'm afraid. So this team was set up to look at how, how can we make them cheaper? Right. How can we do that? So we, for the last two and a half years, we've been looking at the process of manufacture. And 
I'm really excited by the whole 3D printing. Right. Oh, okay. So we're actually looking at 3D printing um, a clarinet and the keyword. Right. And, you know, it's now nine months ago, I would have said it's not possible. But the people on my team, they're very experienced engineers and working with Manchester University. Uh, they, they're very experienced people in their field, a field mm -hmm. of which I know very little about. But I do know a lot about it now. And I, I'm quite excited about the, uh, the prospect of 3D printing instruments. And obviously, there, there may be a difference. There will be a difference in tone and quality. But it's, I think you've got to think of it in terms of it's not the same. It's different. But uh -huh. can you live with that different? Right, okay. So yeah. I, I'm very excited about the, the 3D stuff at the moment. So we're going to see some 3D printed flutes, are we? That's funny you should say that. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, well, I was, uh, when I was over in um, Northern Ireland for one of the competitions, somebody said to me, you know, we got loads of youngsters who want to come along to our band, but mm -hmm. even the cheapest flutes, they're, they're not cheap enough. Or if they are, they're not very good. And he, he said it's really unfair to give um, a youngster a flute that doesn't really work just to try yeah. and get them in because it's going to push them away. Uh -huh. So my idea would be to produce something that is economical but actually okay. is as well thought out as my own instruments themselves. The, wow. the problem with a lot of the the, um, the student instruments that I'm seeing for for fluters is they just weren't very good in the first place, let alone yeah. reproduced. Um, mm. So it it's something I think that could could potentially happen. Well, that sounds good because I, I know going back to my days of learning. I mean, the flutes that we got. As as learners were the dregs, you know, it was like there were bits and there were there were there were hybrids, there were bits of other flutes joined together and a bit of tape around them or thread around the, the cork to try and make them stick together and stuff like that. There and if you were getting a note out of it, you know, you were doing you were doing well um, in terms of that. You know what I mean? So it's great to hear that you're thinking along those lines. I think you're 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 definitely right there. You, we don't want to be giving young people, you know substandard instruments to the point where the, it puts them off there and it makes it harder for them to learn but yet at the same time we can't because flutes are expensive let's, let's face it you know what i mean generally you're talking what 400 something for a decent flute you're talking 400 plus aren't you you know and i mean and not a, and a lot of bonds can't afford to, to go down that lane you know of, of spending especially if you're a big bond you know we've got some massive bonds over here you know 30, 40 flute players, you know, by the time you spend 300, 400 pounds of flute, you know, that's a considerable outlay. And then not not take take on the consideration that you maybe have 10 or 12 people in your learner's class. You know, that's that's quite a financial outlay, isn't it? Oh, absolutely is. And and the thing is, uh, you're absolutely right about the, um, the, the, the hybrid uh, well, the mongrel instruments. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I mean, I've seen plenty of them come in the workshop. I'm thinking, well, this head's not from here, but, you know, it kind of works, but, uh, but not very well. 
Um, I mean, that's that's the other thing is that you know learners need something that that's that's actually going to encourage them. Yeah. The, the last thing they need is a is a knockback uh, because you know they're being told that they're they're not good enough, but because they've got no inspiration to actually practice at home because they're finding yeah. the instrument difficult to play. I mean, yeah. my my idea for a student instrument. Okay, let's let's get back to the basics. The it's the key work. The key yeah. work is the most time-consuming aspect of flute making, um, and it's the bit that requires the most skill. Mm-hmm. So, if you can make an instrument with, say, one key or two keys, which gives the juniors uh, a chance to get their embouchure together, get to know where their fingers go, and obviously their their little finger on the E flat key. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really good start. And it won't take them too long to to manage to pick up the other four keys on the yeah. instrument. Um, but it's it's the transition between a student instrument and the better instruments that they're going to find difficult, purely because the sound of them is going to be so different yeah. because they've been given the, the rubbish instruments. But it'd be great to have a, um, a starter instrument that you don't have to change your embouchure for. You can go straight onto a better instrument, and it's all there because you've actually learnt it on your on your starter instrument. So yeah. I, th- I think there's a lot to, to think about, and um, I, you know it is it is price led. It's 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 you know like you say the bands have have got that. There's a lot of expenditure with a band, as you yeah. know. I mean, I was gobsmacked at the price of uniforms. Uh, hiring coaches to go to venues etc it's it's big business really um and you don't always get what you want by going around shaking tins at the parades and what have you so it's it's a it's a tricky business fundraising um so it would be great to give them a break with a a cheaper flute but Uh good quality that's what i'm thinking Brilliant. Well, listen, that sounds really interesting, you know, so definitely keep us up to speed with how that, that's going, because I definitely think, you know, there'll be people listening in on this, Peter, and thinking that sounds right up our street, you know, so I don't think you'll have any people, you know, you'll you'll not have too many people not knocking your door to try and find out about that whenever, whenever you do maybe get around to, to making that a reality and stuff, so definitely keep us up to speed with that. Maybe just in terms of finishing off then, how do people get a hold of your fruits then? Where can they, you've obviously a website and stuff, so it's it's shameless plug time, you know? So <laughs> although we don't want to do it too much because you do, we don't want you getting 100 orders for the year, you know? So <laughs> No, I've got other stuff to do as well. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, the best way to contact, contact me is email. Um, and the best way to get my email address is just to go to my website, which is www.peterworrell.co.uk and all the information is there um yeah it's the best way to get hold of me because then i can respond when i'm available so um yeah yeah just drop me an email just to say hello it's fine um that's not a problem at all excellent well listen peter i wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time out to, to share some of that stuff with us. That's been absolutely fascinating. I'm sitting thinking here, that's an hour and a half, and it feels like we've been talking for 10, 15 minutes. It's been absolutely, it's been fantastic. And I think for me, being so, you know, interested in, in the subject matter, I've just found it absolutely fascinating. So uh, thank you very much for 
for taking the time out and being on on the podcast, man. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, you're absolutely welcome, Glenn. Uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, the uh, Mate Parade podcast is doing so well. It's uh, you know it's it's a it's a thing now. So that it's, it's, <laughs> so you need to carry on. I mean, you've got a you've got an army of uh, listeners now. So uh, hopefully they'll find this podcast. This is entertaining. I, I think the will. There's a lot of there's a lot of what we call the the flute aficionados here. You know the people who are really into their instruments and stuff are going to really dig this. And I think even just anyone, you know, there's there's bits and pieces in this. I think what I'm I might actually do as well, Peter. I might even do cut out the wee section that you've done on flute care and maybe make that a separate video as well as a part of the you know the the main podcast as well, just to say, well, listen, if you want to just focus in on this, here's some great tips for looking after your flute and use, use that as a resource for the scene as well. So, you know, absolutely brilliant. But listen, I'm just going to close the the the, the episode out here and then I'll come back off at the end and we'll have a, maybe have a wee quick in, outro chat well, after I've done the thing here, if you if you yeah. don't mind. And yeah, sure. I'll just do that now then. All right, so yeah. folks, there you go. Absolutely fantastic conversation with Peter there. I, I don't know about you, but I found that absolutely fascinating in terms of the process that go, you know, making a flute you know from the wood and how long it actually takes the key work everything that goes into that there is absolutely fantastic maybe help us look at our instruments maybe a wee bit differently and look after them maybe a wee bit differently as well you know so thanks again to, to, to peter for for coming on and uh, and sharing all that with us absolutely brilliant folks make sure you check out the next episode i'm not going to tell you who's on it you'll just have to check it out and see whenever when we release it but, you know, until the next time, look after yourselves and take it easy. You have been listening to the Made to Parade podcast, sponsored by the British Drum Company, where Phantom, Regimental Series and Axial Parade Drums are hand-built in the UK to look amazing, sound amazing and feel amazing. <laughs>